Okay. So, uh, we talked about precious human life this morning, and hopefully uh, you have more of an appreciation for it. One thing that helps us to have this appreciation is to remember that it's not going to last forever. Yeah. And that uh, we're mortal beings, we're going to die. We don't know when death is going to happen. Uh, and it could, would probably happen at the most unexpected time. And we have to be ready for it when it happens. And when death comes, uh, you know, we have to, or before death comes, we have to really think what is important when I die. Yeah. I ne because I never heard anybody say on their deathbed, I wish I had worked more overtime. Yeah. So if that's not the kind of thing you're going to regret when you die, uh, don't put your energy into working more overtime when you're alive. Okay. But really, uh, because we have limited time, we have to direct our energy in, in an appropriate way and really make the best use of it. So before talking about impermanence and death, the Buddha talked uh, about why, you, what are the faults of uh, not remembering death and what are the, mem the uh, good qualities or the advantages of remembering death. And among the faults are that we forget to practice. Yeah, we think, uh, you know, the vision of this life is so strong and so potent uh, and it seems so real to us that thinking about creating the causes for future lives is just out the window. You know, we're just so absorbed with what's going on in this life. And that really skews uh, our ability to assess what is valuable and not. Because when we think of only this lifetime, then money is really important, reputation is really important, yeah. um, praise is important, sense pleasure is important. But when we think of the long term, you know, that this moment is temporary and this life is going, 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 uh, then those things that seem so important actually go way down in importance because we see how transitory they are. Yeah, how they're, they're here and they vanish. And instead, creating virtue becomes more important. Planting the seeds of Dharma in our mind stream becomes important. Yeah, doing practice and transforming our way of looking at things, this becomes important as well. Yeah, so when we remember death, uh, you know, our priorities change. And so this is quite important. Remembering death is not morbid. Okay. So this is one thing sometimes we have to get over. We think, oh, but death is so morbid, you know. 
And uh, I don't know if your family is like mine, but in my family, when I was growing up, nobody talked about death. Because the idea was if you talked about it, it might happen. Implying that if you don't talk about it, it won't happen. Now, is that true? Yeah, that the way to avoid death and have a mortal life is not to talk about death. No, that's not the technique for that. Okay, so it's really important to talk about death, to understand that we are impermanent phenomena, and then to make preparations for death. Because yeah. like anything, uh, if you're prepared for it, it's not a big deal. It's like, uh, I guess, like going to take your O-levels or your A-levels. If you studied beforehand, when you sit down to take the test, you know, it's, it's not a big thing because you've studied, you're prepared. But if you spent all your school years playing and not studying and you didn't do any preparation, then when the exams come, you're like, you know, and it doesn't look good. So it's the same idea that if we prepare for death, then they say that the people who are the most prepared, that death is like going home or it's like going on a picnic. It's a breeze. Yeah. For people who are middle prepared, uh, then uh, they don't have any regrets. They feel content with the way they live their life. For people who are somewhat prepared, then at least they don't have any fear. But for people who are not prepared at all, then when it becomes evident to them that they're separating not only from their friends and their relatives and their possessions, but also from their body and their whole ego identity, yeah, and they don't know who they're going to be or what's going to happen, that's when death gets really scary. Okay? So if we spend the time now really understanding death, being aware of it, and making good choices in our life, then uh, it's not going to be a frightful thing. Okay? So, you know, one of the benefits of contemplating death is that we'll remember the Dharma. Okay? And we'll also remember that, uh, that death, the time of death is uncertain. We don't know what's gonna, when it's going to happen. So it's good to, not, to do our Dharma practice now and not put it off. Okay? And the, another disadvantage is uh, if we don't remember death, then even though we may practice Dharma, it won't be purely. It'll get mixed up with the eight worldly concerns or we'll get distracted from our practice by the eight worldly concerns. So here comes the topic of the eight worldly concerns. Okay? Now, when I first met the Dharma, uh, I first met it in, uh, in the U.S., and then I quit my job and I went to Copan. And in those days, yeah, the main, one of the main teachings Rinpoche gave was on the evil thought of the eight worldly concerns. 
and attachment to the happiness of only this life. And he talked about it one first day and second day and third day and fourth day. And it got really hammered into us. Yeah. And I am actually so grateful for that because having heard these teachings again and again at the beginning of my practice and then contemplating them then, it, it really made a strong impression on me about uh, you know, how to make good choices and what I need to do and what I need to abandon. Yeah. And so this topic of the worldly concerns comes up all the time under the topic of death. Some teachers kind of skim over it because it's one of those teachings that I mentioned that people don't like to hear. Okay, why? Because our whole life is involved in it and, revo and revolves around attachment to, to uh, four of the eight and, and distaste for the other four. But it's really an important teaching and so I want to go into it now. Um, and here's where I'm going to read to you, to you some parts from His Holiness's description because uh, the way he talks about it, I find it you know, very, very useful. Okay, so this is in volume two, The Foundation of Buddhist Practice. And it's, let's see, page 191. Okay, so here's what he says. So I'll intersperse this with my comments and maybe some of my stories too. You want to hear my stories, right? Yeah, I get to talk about myself. <laughs> okay, although we have such precious potential, we often fail to recognize it. Or even if we do, we are distracted and do not utilize it. True or not true? Very true, isn't it? Our tendency to pay more attention to gaining immediate happiness and avoiding unpleasant situations is often stronger than a clear awareness that sees the value of creating the causes for a fortunate rebirth, liberation, and awakening. Yeah, so we're much more preoccupied with my happiness now. Yeah, isn't that what what we think about most of the time, yeah? From the time we wake up to the time we go to bed, how can I have pleasure, ASAP, yeah? With as little effort as possible, hmm? Our chief obstacles at present are subsumed in the eight worldly concerns, four pairs of delight and de dejection that produce attachment and anger. So here's a quote from the numerical resources in the Pali Canon. What's, uh, what we did in this book is we have a lot of citations from the Pali Canon. So, uh, and uh, some explanation from the, the Theravada or Pali tradition as well. I think that's very helpful for us to learn from uh, other Buddhist traditions because all of us are students of the Buddha. Okay. So these sutras say, gain and loss, disrepute and fame, blame and praise, pleasure and pain, 
These eight worldly concerns revolve around the world, and the world revolves around these eight worldly concerns. How true it is, yeah? Attachment arises towards one part of each pair, material or financial gain, good reputation or image, praise and approval, and pleasure. Okay, and pleasure, especially pleasure from sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, touches, te no, tactile sensations. And then aversion arises towards the other part of each pair, lack of money and possessions, a notorious reputation, blame and criticize, criticism and discomfort or pain. So illustrations of these eight abound in our daily lives. We try to arrange our lives to come in contact with attractive objects and people, tantalizing sense experiences, yeah, sweet, ego-pleasing words, money, possessions, and so forth. You know, what is advertised? You know, we, we are suckers for the advertisements, aren't we? You know, we see, we see an ad and we go, oh yeah, I want that. And even though part of us says, oh, they're just trying to sell me laundry soap, saying that, you know, I'll, I'll have a good sex life if I have laundry soap. I don't believe that. But just in case it's true, I am going to get that brand of laundry soap. <laughs> okay? And so we let ourselves be manipulated. And I think especially nowadays where there's such a crisis about climate change, you know, and climate change is related to overusing the world's resources, especially in wealthy countries where we use more than our own share of the resources that are not, uh, cannot be replenished, then it's really important that we think, uh, you know, about what's important. So we don't spend our time chasing after things that are not going to bring us ultimate happiness, but will create climate change and uh, pollution and harm the life on this planet. And I, I don't know if people here speak a lot about climate change, but when we were flying in uh, on what day? We came on Monday, okay? And I was looking as you uh, down, and you, you know, Singapore just kind of pops up out of the ocean. Yeah? I mean, really, a big ocean, and it just goes poop. But it's not very tall. I mean, the highest point in Singapore is like 500 feet, isn't it? Yeah. So if there's climate change and the level of the seawater changes, you know, you guys got to learn to swim. <laughs> yeah. Because you're going to be swimming between one high rise and another. Because the island is very quickly going to go, you know, uh, on underwater, at least parts of it will. So this is uh, not something theoretical. In fact, uh, a panel of scientists just said that their previous calculations of how long it would take um, for the devastation from climate change to occur 
what they underestimated it that it was going to be more quickly than they thought. Okay, so we this is something urgent. Yeah. So to to really think about how our levels of consumption are uh, not only affecting us karmically because of greed, but how we're affecting the planet and the lives of the future generations. Because when you look at your kids and your grandkids, you want them to be happy, but are we creating uh, the cause for them to live in a world, uh, you know, that's safe? Or are we, you know, creating the cause for climate change and then they're going to have to deal with it? Okay, so our attachment to, uh, to the eight worldly concerns. We complain when, um, yeah, sense experiences, words, money, possessions, and these things don't meet our standard or when we encounter their opposites, when they're unpleasant. Being preoccupied with these eight, which center on our own happiness in only this life, we become very reactive to our environment and the people in it. This emotional reactivity, clinging to what we like, pushing away what we don't, brings difficulties in this life and impedes actualizing our long-term goals. So if you look, you know, we all have problems, right? If you look on a daily basis of what your mind is unhappy about, I guarantee that they're all related to, for us ordinary beings, they're all related to the eight worldly concerns. Yeah, what am I unhappy about? Somebody at work is talking bad about me behind my back. What I am, am I unhappy about? Somebody else got the promotion. I didn't. What am I unhappy about? My husband, my wife, is looking at somebody else. And they're not looking the way I want them to look. Yeah. What am I unhappy about? My kids just, you know, spelled spaghetti sauce all over the floor. My kid in primary one, flunked their spelling test. Oh, this is terrible. Primary one, and he can't spell cat and dog. He's never going to get into a good school, never going to get a good education, never get a good job, never make a lot of money. Yeah, this is an attachment to the eight worldly concerns. So my kid has to know how to spell cat and dog. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so the first uh, one, the first pair, financial and material gain and loss. So we all like to think, oh, I'm not attached to money. I'm not attached to possessions. I know they come, come, go, go. Yeah, I'm not attached. I can give them up like that. Yeah, but we never give them up like that. We just talk about how we're able to do that. <laughs> okay, so His Holiness says, 
The first pair of delights and rejections involves our relationship with money and possessions. We are elated when we have a lot of money. Yes, my life is valuable. It is meaningful. I am successful. My parents finally approve of me. My spouse finally loves me. Yeah, that's what we think, isn't it? Okay, so we're elated when we have money, clothes, a comfortable house, a new car, and good sports equipment, and we become upset when we are unable to procure the things we desire when they are destroyed or when they are taken away from us. So our car gets scratched. Who scratched my car? My precious, beautiful, status symbol car. Who scratched it? Yeah. And we're mad. Sadly, many people measure their success in life by their material wealth. No matter how much they have, they are never satisfied and never feel fully successful. Of course, we need to take care of the practical aspects of our life. But if we pay undue attention to material possessions and finances, we become a slave to them. Once we are entrapped by their lure, contentment evades us. Quarrels ensue as we try to procure more and better and protect what we already have. We become arrogant towards those who have less, jealous of those who have more, and compete with equals, trying to prove our worth by having more than them. True or not true? Yeah. Attached to financial and material gain, we work long hours and plan big projects to make us rich. Unless we are able to use the money wisely and benefit others by using the money, the process of gaining wealth consumes our time and energy so that we have little left for practicing dharma. In the process of accumulating wealth, our ethical discipline is easily corrupted. Those who are greedy become involved in activities that harm individuals and society and that result in scandals and prison terms. And this is what His Holiness says now. Unfortunately, some lamas and geshis initially live a simple life, studying and practicing diligently. They are very humble and not at all arrogant. Later, when they have many disciples, especially wealthy ones, they become ostentatious. They forget the many years of sacrifice they went through for the Dharma and, cor and are corrupted by seeking wealth and fame. We must be attentive not to do this ourselves. Okay, so we learn from watching other people's mistakes. And His Holiness is not shy about pointing out the errors of other practitioners. Yeah, he does that quite openly. Okay, so this attachment to money, possessions, 
and thinking that that is the criteria of success. Now, someone is going to say, but, yeah, because there's always, yes, but, yeah, I love when people say that to me. Yes, but, yeah. So the but is, what about if I work really hard and I earn a lot of money and then I use it for Dharma activities? I offer it to the Dharma Center, to the temple, to the monastery. I sponsor books for free distribution. Then isn't it okay for me to make a lot of money? Sounds like a good argument, doesn't it? Yeah, sounds good. I'm going to work hard, make a ton of money, but it's not for me. It's going to all go for, for Buddhism. Well, I can't tell you the number of people who have talked to me about that and said, when we earn a lot of money, we're going to make a huge donation to the Abbey. And I go, hmm. I have yet to see any of those huge donations after the people have spent so much time making a ton of money. Somehow, before you make the money, it's easy to give it away. But after you have it, the mind changes and I don't want to give it away anymore. I want to keep it for my, me and my family. Okay, so I'll give a little bit, you know, you can, you can have, um, you know, $50. But we're going to go on a vacation to the Bahamas or meditate, Mediterranean cruise or something like that. Okay. <laughs> okay, then the next section is good and bad reputation and image. I must say, I can only imagine how many people have promised His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you know, huge donations from when they get rich. And he probably hasn't seen any of it. Okay, so good and bad reputation and image. We feel elated when we are well known and have a good reputation and dejected when our image is damaged. Yeah, right? Yeah, do you like having a good reputation among a, a lot of people in your workplace? You want to have a good reputation? Even in your family, you want a good reputation? In your social group, want a good reputation? We all want to be known as important people, intelligent, creative, athletic, whatever it is, you know, whatever our groups we belong to, we want to have some status in them. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be a nobody. Continually preoccupied by what others think of us leads to self-preoccupation and emotional instability. We pay a lot of attention to appearances and lacking sincerity, we use others for our own advantage. Now, when we want reputation, we just manipulate and use other people to get what we want. Many people succeed in achieving a good reputation or a high rank, but lack internal peace and true friendships. 
So here I'd like to pause, and I'm going to talk about President Trump. <laughs> because he is the perfect example of this, okay? He has wealth, or at least he tells people he, he has wealth. We have yet to see his tax returns. But we know that he's bankrupt three casinos before. But anyway, he brags about his wealth. He has status. Yeah. He has kids. Yeah. From three marriages. We won't talk about that. <laughs> um, yeah. And he's rich. He's famous. You know, he thinks he's the king of America. Yeah, and he's claiming to be above the law. Okay, and so this is the epitome of what you're supposed to be to be successful. Rich, famous, yeah, powerful. When you see him, does he look like a happy individual to you? When you hear him talk, is he happy? This guy is miserable. He's so angry. He sees conspiracies to harm him everywhere. Yeah. He thinks other people are trying to take him down. And so he retaliates when people aren't even doing anything. Yeah. Is this a happy mind? Is this really leading, having, uh, being successful? Does having a reputation like that make you happy? Yeah, having, I don't know what percent of the, the country, it's under 50%, saying, oh, you're so wonderful, and wearing their hats, make America great again, having everybody there, cheering, rah, 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 rah. When you step on stage and you're beaming, yeah. Is that, does that satisfy his inner needs? Does that really make him happy? I mean, this guy is so unhappy. So, you know, I think it's very good for us to often look at the people who are rich and famous and you know, or look at the lives of the people you're jealous of and really look at their lives, what they experience and ask yourself if you would really want to change places with them. If what is taunted as success in our society is really what makes you happy and, and content. Yeah, check it out. Really look. I remember when I was growing up, Elizabeth Taylor was, you know, the big hit. Elizabeth Taylor and Marilyn Monroe, you know, and we were all supposed to look like them. <laughs> of course, we didn't. You know, Elizabeth Taylor was married eight times. Yeah, do you think she had a happy life? She was very famous, very beautiful, very rich. 
Yeah, one divorce rips your life apart. Yeah, I think she actually divorced the last one too. I can't remember. So she had seven or eight divorces and sometimes remarried the guy that she divorced before. Is this happiness? And Marilyn Monroe, what happened to her? Did she suicide? I think so, yeah. So, you know, talk about gorgeous. All the guys had posters of her. JFK was her secret lover. Well, not so secret. Um, <laughs> yeah. Jackie certainly knew about it. Um, and yet, she committed suicide. Okay. So we have to really look. When I went to college, I went to USC, University of Southern California. O.J. Simpson, you know who O.J. Simpson is? Was this the fantastic hero, uh, court, he was a quarterback, linebacker, he was somebody. Huh? A running? A running back. I thought you run forward. <laughs> anyway, I guess he got confused. He was going in the wrong direction because he was really famous in college. He was the star of not the whole football team. The whole university revolved around O.J. Simpson. And that's how they got so many grants, you know, how the university funded itself. And I remember going to a football game where, you know, in my freshman year, I hate football, but there was a guy who asked me to go and I wanted to date him. So I went. <laughs> I knew nothing about football, but you know what was going on when OJ was on the field? You know, all the cheerleaders were cheering, but you know what the crowd shouted to OJ? Kill, kill, kill. In other words, kill your football opponent and beat, beat the other team. But I think he took that too literally. <laughs> and his life has wounded, wound up to be quite a mess. Yeah, quite a big mess. So it's just, you know, to really look, does, is fame really... What, what is going to ma make you happy? A good reputation. Will it really do it? I had a little twinkling of fame. Okay. So this was about 25 years ago. Yeah, my, my one twinkling at fame. Um, and His Holiness Dalai Lama was giving a series of teachings in the U.S. And in the evening they had... Uh, some other people speak. So I was asked to speak one evening. So I gave a Dharma talk. And I guess I was exceptionally funny or something. Everybody liked the talk. So the next day, you know, I'm listening to His Holiness's teachings, which is why I came, you know, to really learn the Dharma from him. And at the break time, I had to go pee-pee. Well, when you're famous... Well, I wasn't famous. My, it was my one little, my one little bit of fame in this, uh, you know, assembly. 
because they liked the talk. I was trying to get from my seat to the ladies' room, and I kept getting stopped with people saying, oh, thank you for your talk. Your talk was so good. Your talk was so good. And I'm sitting there like, I gotta go pee-pee. <laughs> you know? So I really saw the disadvantages of being pe- famous. You know? Just, just in that little thing. Because you can't even get to the toilet. Uh, so it really made me think if I wanted to be famous or not. Okay? So, so just consider it. You know, how circumscribed your life is if you have a really good reputation. Yeah. So fortunately, people forgot about my, my glorious reputation and now I can get to the ladies' room very easily, <laughs> which I really appreciate. <laughs> okay. People are attracted to a famous person because of his or her reputation. Whether or not that person has something valuable to contribute to society is another question. Without being impressed with titles, honors, or power, we are better off looking at each person as another human being who has the Buddha nature and seeks happiness and not suffering just like us. So instead of looking at other people through the lens of who is rich, who is famous, who is powerful, who knows all the people that you're supposed to know, just train your mind to look at everybody and here's a sentient being with the potential to become a fully awakened Buddha, a sentient being who's trapped in in samsara, who wants to be happy, who doesn't want to suffer, but whose mind is overwhelmed by ignorance and afflictions. And we are all exactly the same in that regard. Yeah. If you train your mind to look at other people that way, you have much better relationships with people. Yeah. And from our side, we are much more honest and sincere in our relationships because we won't be seeking to use other people for our own personal gain. Okay, now His Holiness starts talking about his self. As a monastic, I am not so concerned about gain and loss of wealth. However, as the Dalai Lama, I sit on a high throne when I teach, and sometimes in the corner of my mind the thought arises, I hope people respect me. When explaining the Dharma, I sometimes wonder, Does the audience like this talk? Sometimes our minds are invaded by defiled thoughts. What a great practitioner I have become. I hope other people notice. It is important to free our minds from expectations of receiving offerings, respect, and appreciation when we share the Dharma. We should talk about our faults, and let others speak of our good qualities. But we would rather talk about our good qualities and we don't let anybody else talk about our faults. It should be the opposite. Of course, we must prepare before giving a Dharma talk. But if we are too concerned with our delivery, 
or with how the audience receives the teachings, there is danger that our Dharma talk is for show. Instead of being apprehensive about what others will say about us, we should generate a sincere motivation at the beginning, thinking, although I do not know much, I will explain what I understand. Then we will not be nervous and will speak truthfully. If people ask questions that we cannot answer, we simply say that we do not know and use it as an opportunity to learn more. This is Dalai Lama saying this. A member of my staff chided me, saying that I don't prepare my speeches well enough. (laughs) Perhaps he would like me to make more astute comments about complex topics. However, I feel more genuine when I talk about what I practice and live myself. When I do that, I am not worried about whether or not others like my talk. One time, a reporter from an important paper in New York interviewed me and asked how I would like to be remembered in history. Now, a lot of people think about this. I told her, this is not my concern. I am a Buddhist practitioner and am not interested in such things. But she kept asking me until I got impatient And I said, I don't think about that. (laughs) Clearly the reporter thought about it. Being concerned with present reputation or our name in history is foolish. We will not be alive to enjoy our reputation in history. So why worry about it? Yeah? You think, oh, you know, I want to be rich and famous and whatever, and then all my family members, they will know and they will teach their children how good I was and they will teach my grandchildren and grandchildren. And like, so what? You know, we're not going to be around to enjoy it. All they'll have is our name. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, the children and grandchildren and future generations, I was, you know... The, the great, great, great granddaughter of whoever it was. Yeah. But whoever it was is now in the hell realm or the hungry ghost realm or the animal realm. And, you know, what good does their reputation do? Yeah. I was on a pilgrimage in China uh, some years ago. And we stopped at one little tea stall and they had a, fic- a picture of the gang of four, you know, on the wall. And uh, this was many years ago, so the gang of four was still a hot top- topic. And, uh, and we kind of looked at it and thought, you know, here were these people who were so powerful and so famous, and where are they now? What have they been reborn as? Yeah. So I think about this often, about the people who are richer and famous nowadays. Yeah. And then I look at their ethical conduct, and I wonder, where will they be reborn? Because wherever it is, it's not going to be 
like the situation they're enjoying now. Because in getting what, in, in order to get what they have this life, they've created a lot of negativities. And that's what will ripen in future lives for them. So it's really rather sad sometimes when you think about the lives of these people. Yeah. A good reputation doesn't get us any closer to awakening. Our image is not important, but our motivation is. If our motivation is insincere, then even if everyone praises us, the glory will not last long. But if we are sincere and straightforward, we will communicate well with others. Eventually, they will accept and appreciate our intentions, and that respect will last over time. Whereas if we swindle people for our own advantage now, they're going to figure out that we're not honest. And whatever respect they had for us initially is going to disappear very quickly. Buddha Shakyamuni was never concerned about his name or fame. But after 26 centuries, people still love and respect him. Even non-Buddhists appreciate his message of nonviolence and compassion. Great masters such as Nagarjuna remained simple Buddhist monks, however learned they became. Of course, when they debated the meaning of the teachings, they became an animated and spoke forcefully. But this was not done out of arrogance or desire. Some present Geshis are like that. In their ordinary life, they are so humble that we may even doubt whether they can walk properly. <laughs> but when they go into the debating courtyard, they suddenly become active and assertive because that's what's important. Oh, and now he goes on and he says, look at the great Indian sage Shantideva. You know the story of Shantideva? Eighth century Indian sage? They say in the monastery all he did was three things. Eat, sleep, and go to the bathroom. They thought he was the laziest monk in the whole monastery and they wanted to kick him out. From his writings, we know that Shantideva was an intelligent, realized practitioner. But in his daily life, he was so humble that people thought he only ate, slept, and defecated. However, we see in the ninth chapter of Engaging in the Bodhisattva's Deeds that in debate, he could be relentless and fierce in counteracting wrong conceptions. Once when he taught emptiness, this was when he uh, uh, was speaking the ninth chapter of engaging in the Bodhisattva states. When he taught emptiness, he floated up in space until he finally disappeared and only his voice could be heard, displaying a superpower that flabbergasted the audience. So here was somebody that everybody thought was a dimwit who was a highly realized master, but didn't brag about any of it. Okay, then praise and approval and criticism and disapproval. This is the third set. Yeah. Do you enjoy His Holiness's commentary on this? 
I think it's really nice. We love, we love when people we like comment on our good qualities or competent work, right? Yeah, say good things about me, please, as much as possible. And we become depressed when they point out our faults, criticize us, or blame us for things we may or may not have done. Due to this delight and dejection, our emotions vacillate drastically, as does our self-image. Yeah, we care so much about what other people say about us. Yeah, somebody compliments us, somebody criticizes us, somebody smiles at us, somebody ignores us. Yeah, we're really like emotional yo-yos. Yeah. When I look, you know, I talk sometimes about our rules of the universe. You know, maybe you have rules of your universe. One of my most important rules of the universe is everybody must like me. And even if they don't like me, they still have to pretend they like me and say good things about me. Okay? No one, absolutely no one is allowed to criticize me. Even if I have faults, they aren't supposed to notice. They definitely aren't supposed to point them out. Because my faults are actually good qualities. Do you have similar rules of the universe? Yeah? Do you get upset when people say things that you don't like about you? Or if they ignore you? Yeah? Or they don't say, I love you enough? Ah, yeah. I don't know about you, but I am a sucker for praise. If you praise me, I'll do anything. And if you criticize me, I will go in my room and cry. Because you're so mean. Are you like that? Yeah. Yeah. Elated when people say nice things about you and really unhappy when they don't and when they blame you for things. Yeah. Especially when people blame us for things we didn't do or things we did do but they weren't supposed to find out about. Then we are really unhappy. Oh. In an effort to win the approval of others and avoid their disapproval, we may sacrifice our ethical standards to win their favor, succumb to peer pressure to fit in, and make unwise decisions that have long-term consequences. In the hopes of winning someone's approval, we try to become what we think they think 
we should be. So I don't even know who I am because I'm always trying to make myself be what I think other people think I should be. Okay, this is crazy making. In the process of doing so, we lose touch with what we really think and feel and live in fear of accidentally doing something that would annoy the other person and garner their criticism. Yeah, it's so stressful when we're trying to create a good image and impress people and win their praise and approval. It's so stressful, yeah. So think about it, look at your own life and see when you get stressed and if some of your stress is about this attachment to praise and approval or attachment to reputation. When meeting new people, we usually present our good side and may exaggerate our qualities to win their approval and affection, often not realizing the extent of our deceit and pretension until later. Once these people like us, we may take their friendship for granted and stop being so considerate of them. As a result, they criticize us. We feel hurt and resentful, and difficulties in the relationship ensue. Very true, isn't it? Our self-confidence plummets because it was based on the praise of others and not on our honest self-assessment. Sometimes we become confused and don't know what to believe about ourselves because one person praises us and another criticizes us for the same action in quick succession. Have you ever had that happen to you? Yeah, I had that happen one time. Again, many years ago. And uh, I was living in the monastery and uh, one person came up to see me and said, you are such an exemplar nun. You keep your precepts so well, I really admire. So of course, she was a very wonderful, nice person who I liked. <laughs> After she left, you know, an, a half an hour, an hour later, somebody else came and said to me, you are so sloppy in the way you keep your precepts. You are such a bad example for everybody else. So, of course, I didn't like her because she lied. <laughs> okay? And all of this happened within the space of about an hour. One person praising me for the same thing as another person criticized me for. If we always believe what other people say about us, then we're going to go really crazy. Because one minute somebody tells us we're wonderful, and the next minute for the same action, somebody tells us that we're confused and stupid. Yeah, We have to learn to assess ourselves, evaluate ourselves. This is incredibly important because other people don't know our motivation. They only know how it looks on the outside. And our motivation is the important part of the action. Yeah. 
And other people don't know that. So we can look good. And we know how to look good, don't we? We know how to act so that other people will think well of us. Yeah. But our intention, when we act like that in order to gain reputation and praise, is our intention benevolent? No, it's completely corrupt, isn't it? I want people to like me, so I will do what I think will impress them, so that they will think that I'm nice, even though I'm horribly selfish. Okay, so then we get very confused, because we don't even know who we are anymore. So it's very important to really stop and look at our own intentions. And evaluate ourselves and then act according to what we learn. I have found, this is His Holiness talking, I have found that it is better for everyone involved to be sincere, frank, and natural with others. I show what I am and do not pretend to be otherwise, no matter what others think or say about me. Being free of attachment to praise and reputation gives me the ability to relate as one human being to another. Yeah? And so this really fits in when we talk about generating bodhicitta, overcoming the self-centered thought, learning to cherish others. In order to do that, we have to give up this preoccupation and attachment to our own reputation and to praise. Okay? And so His Holiness here is saying that when you give up that attachment, then you're very free. Then you can look at everybody as just, you know, a, a worthwhile individual because you no longer want something out of them. You're no longer trying to impress them or make ourselves look good. And so that when we're no longer trying to to get something out of others, uh, then our mind is really, really free to relate to somebody in a very natural, open way. Mm -hmm. Solinus continues, when I was in China in 1954, I met some members of the Communist Party. They spoke to the point. Our discussions were very frank, and I like some of them at least for a while. But other officials, officials were too polite. They were trying to impress me and that made me suspicious of their purpose. The eight worldly concerns are sneaky even when we try to create virtue. Excellent practitioners will sometimes notice in the back of their minds the thought wishing to receive praise, respect, or offerings. That's why the bodhisattva uh, precepts, the first one, you know, has to do with praising self and belittling others due to attachment to uh, reputation and offerings. And this is exactly why that's, that precept is there. Mm 
Worse yet are those practitioners who try to impress others with their knowledge or ability to perform rituals. Some get enamored with their own charisma. In fact, praise doesn't benefit us in a substantial way. When you think about it, you know, we really crave praise and reputation. But what good does it do? Yeah, praise and what other people think about us, reputation, these are people's thoughts. Yeah, blips of energy in their mind. Do those blips of energy in other people's minds really help us? Yeah. They don't increase our longevity, okay? Praise doesn't make us live longer. It does increase our intelligence. It doesn't increase our good health. And criticism also doesn't impede those. The law of karma and its effect is our true witness. Others may sing our praises, but we still have to experience the results of the destructive actions we ourselves created. Other people may criticize us, but they cannot destroy our merit or cause us to be reborn in an unfortunate rebirth. Our infatuation with praise and accolades is like thinking a rainbow has some substance. The great Nyingma practitioner Longchen Rabjam said, see the equality of praise and blame, approval and disapproval, good and bad reputation, for they are just like illusions or dreams and have no true existence. Learning to bear them patiently as if they were mere echoes or no, learn to bear them patiently as if they were mere echoes and sever as its root the mind that clings to an I or a self. Very good advice. Okay, then the, the next, uh, this is the last uh, pair of the eight. So pleasure and pain. So many of our actions are fueled by attachment to pleasurable sights, sounds, odors, tastes, and tactile sensations, such as feeling warm on a cold day and cool on a hot day, and aversion for their opposites. Okay? We, uh, we dislike grating noises, disgusting food, sleeping on a bed that is too hard or too soft, and witnessing alarming sights. And we don't like bad smells. Everybody wants to go to India. Then you're in India, and you walk down the street, and it smells like a toilet, and you want to go back to Singapore. <laughs> okay? Can't stand bad smells. Yeah. We go out to eat food, and we're expecting a really lovely meal, and it's not cooked well enough, or it's cooked too much and we complain, and we create a fuss in the restaurant. Yeah, have you ever done that? Have, have you ever been with somebody who's created a fuss in the restaurant? Call the waiter or waitress over, take this back, this tastes terrible. And all of a sudden, everybody in the restaurant is looking at you, you know? 
and you or your friend is, you know, just creating a scene. Securing the former pleasure and avoiding the latter or pain becomes the purpose of most of our daily life activities. Yet as hard as we try, we are never able to make our lives entirely comfortable, which leaves us feeling grouchy and complaining. So we're always trying day and night to make our lives comfortable in one way or another. And we never succeed. Never, ever, ever. Yeah? You buy a new couch, and then it's too hard or it's too soft. Yeah, you get a new flat. Wow, finally I have a new flat. Yeah, but then the pipes leak or the aircon doesn't work. Or your neighbors play their music really loud at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we never can arrange the external world to be exactly the way we want it. Our unhappiness does not come from inability to control the environment so that we have only pleasure, pleasant sensory experiences. Okay, we think our unhappiness is because we can't control the environment. But, His Holiness says, the real problem is uh, our inability to control our internal emotions of strong craving and aversion. As long as we have strong attachment and aversion, we're going to find something to be unhappy about. Guaranteed. Yeah? And the more attached we are to something, the more unhappy we're going to be when we can't get it, when it's taken away from us, or when we get the opposite. Yeah? And the less attached we are, the more peaceful our life becomes. Somebody, uh, I remember at a talk, a public talk, uh, somebody was saying to His Holiness, but you know, if we, if we aren't attached and experience this great ecstasy and joy from having things we like, you know, and we don't know the sorrow of being torn from the things that we like, then we're not really alive. Yeah, we need the, these extremes of joy and, and pain to be really alive. <laughs> and his holies kind of looked at the person and said, you know, I try and not have that kind of joy and then I also don't have that, that kind of pain. So maybe my life is not as exciting and dramatic as someone else's, but it's a lot more peaceful. Minus the craving and aversion, we may still have preferences, but are able to accept what life brings us. Our frustration and worry decrease, giving way to enjoying what is instead of pining for what isn't. Okay, so, part, so much of our unhappiness is because we can't accept what is in the moment. When we have attachment, we have an ideal of the way we want things to be, and if we don't have that, then we really feel like, you know, life has abandoned us. 
Yeah. But uh, when we don't have that kind of attachment and aversion, then our mind is much freer. So whatever we have is okay. Yeah. Whatever kind of car we have, good enough. However attractive we are, good enough. How much money we have or don't have, good enough. Yeah. Lama Yeshi. Yeah. That was one of his big uh, phrases that he said to us very often. Was good enough, dear. Yeah. What is, is. Accept it. If you accept it, it can't make you miserable. Yeah. Things make us miserable because we fight the reality of what's happening. We want it to be different. And what makes us want to be, it want to, what makes us want it to be different? Attachment to some things and aversion to other things. So this pair of pleasure and pain may also be described as attachment to success and aversion to failure. Whoa, who likes to be successful? Yeah, who doesn't want to fail? Ooh, failure is the worst, isn't it? You know, one time I was uh, talking to a friend of mine, and we were talking about failure, and he was telling me about a friend of his who worked at, in the admissions office of a very well-respected university, and his friend... Uh, was was going through the applications for uh, graduate studies in science. And one of the things his friend looked for most in the applications to see if the, he was going to admit these people to the university was how they handled failure. Think about that. Yeah, somebody who's in evaluating you, what they're looking for is not how successful you are, but how you handle failure. And so I questioned about this, and they explained, you know, how people, you know, everybody has some success, successes, but everybody has some failures too. And if you're going to be a scientist, you're going to fail sometimes. Because you're going to have a theory, you're going to think that it's right, you're going to do the experiment, and you're not going to get the data you want. And then you fail. Yeah. Now how you handle that failure is going to show whether you're going to wind up being an excellent scientist or not. Because when you fail, if you just get depressed and say, forget it, or you change the, the data so <laughs> it becomes what you want it to be instead of what the experiment showed, you know. So in other words, if people can't handle failure, they're not going to be a very good scientist at the end of the day. But if people can say, okay, it didn't turn out the way I wanted, but 
let's see what data I did get, or let's see what we did learn, then that person can be very creative and discover some new things. Because after all, that's how they found out about penicillin. Yeah, the wonder drug of penicillin was, um, wasn't it the Currys, Marie and her husband Curry? And you know, it wasn't them? It was somebody, anyway, they were doing some experiment and the experiment did not turn out the way they wanted. But what they noticed was that this mold that was growing turned out to be antibacterial and thus penicillin was born. Yeah, from failure, from making a mistake. Yeah, so that's uh, how we handle failure is really important. And also when we are successful, how we handle success. Are we going to get up, you know, really uh, arrogant? Are we going to boast? Because yeah. being successful has its own disadvantages. If you're successful, then there's a lot of pressure on you to continue to be successful. So what happens? You're successful and you get a lot of acclaim and then the next time you do this, the same thing or a, a similar kind of project, it winds up as a big mess. Then what do you do? Yeah, Do you handle success well or do you again start changing the data on a scientific experiment? Or do a song and dance to impress somebody else to cover up your mistakes? Or distract people from knowing your mistakes. Yeah, this is what Trump does very often. Yeah, and so we have one crisis after another in the country. Yeah, just incredible. Okay, so this pair may also be described as attachment to success and aversion to failure. Rather than allow our mind and self-esteem to vacillate According to these, we can maintain a balanced attitude by contemplating interdependence. Success does not depend on us alone. The efforts of many people are involved. So arrogance, thinking that we're a big shot, is uncalled for. Failure may be due to mistakes or to external circumstances that we cannot control. Learning from our mistakes is useful and accepting that we cannot control the world is practical. Both of these will calm our mind. Okay, so that's the section on the eight worldly concerns. Okay, so here's a question. So does Buddhism have a view on dementia as in how it is related to meditation? I think when there's dementia, it's very difficult to meditate because the mind is not thinking clearly. The mind can't put things together in a clear, sensible way. Um, I think if you have a parent who's suffering from dementia, then uh, you can maybe teach them some breathing meditation, teach them some chanting, 
uh, tell them to visualize the Buddha and light, uh, the light of wisdom and compassion coming from the Buddha into them. That kind of meditation, I think, would work with somebody who has dementia. But the analytical uh, checking meditation that we do about the Lamrim teachings, I don't think that uh, is possible. Yeah, but prove me wrong. Okay. How can we help someone who has the onset of dementia? Should it be prayers, Tonglen practice, or trying to reason with her that attachment and anger are real poisons that lead to mental degradation? I think prayers uh, for the person who's dealing with the onset of, of dementia, prayers, doing Tonglen practice for them, in terms of trying to reason with them, no, it doesn't work. Um, my dad had dementia, or we're not sure if it was dementia or Alzheimer's. And what I learned uh, is if, if I tried to sell, tell him no things weren't like he thought they were, he couldn't take it in, he couldn't listen. Yeah, but if I just somehow joined in the conversation with him, about whatever he was talking about, then we had a really nice conversation. Yeah, but if I tried to co correct him and say, no, it isn't like that, it, it just didn't work, okay? So, uh, yeah, also I remember when um, a friend of mine, her mom had uh, dementia and she commented that her mom was on one time zone, you know, the present. So, you know, what happened in the past, you know, even five, ten minutes ago, difficult to remember, planning for the future, they can't hold it in their mind. So you just have to deal with what they're saying and doing and thinking in, in that, you know, at that time period. What I did see with my dad, though, is, uh, you know, a lot of forgetfulness when I talked to him. You know, if I said, what did you do today? He couldn't always remember. But uh, he could remember so many things from when he was a young boy. Yeah, I once was in the city where he grew up, and I told him what street uh, intersection I was near, and he proceeded to tell me all about the streets that were all around there and how he used to sell newspapers on the corner here and if you go down that street you find this and go down this street. He remembered all of that from like 70, 80 years ago. Yeah. So um, I, just, I just decided I was gonna enjoy being with my dad, that's all. I wasn't gonna try him to make him makes sense. I wasn't going to try and talk him out of what he was saying because it didn't work. I was just going to love him and enjoy being with him. And that worked. Okay. In Buddhism there are a lot of teachings on compassion. But when a family chooses uh, well, I think when a family member chooses to go uh, on to live as a monastic suddenly, 
wouldn't that cause suffering to their family? Um, it depends how the family thinks. If the family is thinking about the long-term benefit of their child, they would be delighted that their son or daughter is becoming a monk or a nun. If the family is, uh, doesn't think about future lives and they just think about uh, this life and what are they gonna say to their friends and who's gonna take care of them when they're old, uh, then the, the parents will be unhappy. Okay. Uh, what I have learned though is that you cannot, uh, if you live your life trying to make other people happy, you never succeed. And your own life also is not happy. Okay, why? Because when you live your life trying to make other people happy, since the other people are sentient beings with afflictions, they're never gonna be satisfied. No matter what you do, they're going to be unhappy about something. So, you know, trying to please everybody in your family is really a very hopeless endeavor. I know for myself, my family was not happy that I wanted to ordain, but I knew that if I ordained, then hopefully I could create some virtue have a good life, uh, a good future life, protect, uh, progress on the path, and then, because of my karmic connection with my parents this life, in a future life be able to benefit them by sharing the Dharma. And I also knew that if I uh, stayed as a lay person and tried to live the life that my parents wanted me to live, um, it would be impossible to uh, fulfill all their wishes and expectations. I would create a ton of negative karma, wouldn't have a good rebirth. So that just didn't seem like a very feasible option to me. So yes, we talk about compassion, but we have, so we don't deliberately cause other people's suffering. Yeah. So if you want to ordain, it's not like, well, I'm going to do it and I hope my mother and father suffer. I mean, come on. You know, that's, that's a ridiculous attitude. So, you know, we don't do things to make people suffer, but we also realize that you can't please everybody. Impossible to please everybody. Yeah. So you have to do what is best in the long term for the most beings. And in the process of doing that, some people will be unhappy. But you're not making them unhappy. Their limited way of seeing things is what makes them unhappy. I don't understand that. Isn't that compassion for common good minus the ones affected? Oh yeah, so we do try and have compassion for everybody, for the common good. And like I said, sometimes other people's ways of thinking don't in, 
uh, enable them to enjoy what we're doing. I must say, on the, uh, in the situation with my parents, um, after a while, many years, they came around, yeah? And uh, they were okay with what I was doing. Other questions? Comments? Yeah. Okay. Um, that there's something in this question uh, which re relates to myself, but I just make it very general. Is the law of uh, karma universal to all people, including non-believers? It has to do with something when you mention about President Trump, uh, but we don't need to mention about President Trump here. Um, maybe I just mentioned, I think his name is called Joe Lo, um, who has amassed billions of dollars in the 1MBD saga um, by ill, mean, ill means. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying that the, sometimes the outcome of karma for some people to me, I find it is um, in our samsaric world is unfathomable uh, for me. How is it that some people can have billions in asset, but behaved in a unethical or unwholesome Way. manner? Yeah. So, in order for them to have such riches, uh, they they. Oh, this is a question. Uh, does it mean that they did something wonderful in their past life, such that this life, they could have such riches? But then how come they turn out to be like that? Okay. So, uh, yes, the law of karma and its effects applies to everybody. Yeah, it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or you don't believe in it. Um, it applies, okay? So it actually is better for yourself if you believe, uh, you know, because it functions no matter who we are. In terms of, uh, you know, why somebody can have a lot of wealth this uh, lifetime, but also behave abominably, in our previous lives, we've done so many different kinds of actions, and we've had, you know, so many different lifetimes. So in one lifetime, we might have been incredibly generous, and that karma ha is ripening now in terms of having a lot of, um, a lot of riches and wealth. But also, in a previous life, we might have been quite corrupt, and, uh, you know, we, have, we lied a lot, and one of the results of lying is to have the habit to continue to lie in the future or to continue the result of being dishonest in one life as you have the habit uh, in a future life of being dishonest. So, you know, these different karmas could have been created in different lifetimes, but they're ripening together in this one life. So that person, their good karma from being generous is getting exhausted in this lifetime but meanwhile, they're creating a lot of destructive karma that's going to bring them unhappiness in the future. Mm -hmm. So those kind of people 
we have to look at with compassion because they have absolutely no idea about uh, past and future lives, about the law of karma, about their actions having an ethical dimension. So they're just kind of going through life uh, in a very selfish way and creating the karma that they will experience the result of. So we should have compassion for them. Yeah. I, I do not want to contradict you or something, uh, but I just want to add something in the Theravada uh, canon, in the text. Uh, there are also in the commentaries, there are mentioned the six factors also to uh, five, no, it's four, including the, um, the, um, the law of intention and um, the um, karma law. I also mentioned the physical law and You're the right. psychological law. Yes. And, and I w would just refer to the one, one MPD form, which, which is incredible, the billions of money uh, spreading around. We, we overvalue money today in the terms as we think it's, it's good for something, but actually it has never been that way maybe. And it's maybe also based to this physical law because of money. Mark said it that if you have a lot of money, it's going to be um, attracting attracting a lot of more money because it's like flowing the river flowing from a small river to a, a sea and a bigger river and going to the sea. And maybe it's some kind of this effect also of physical um, substance, not only a karmic effect. A full, um, uh, okay. So, yes, there's many different kinds of laws of causation, you know, biological laws, chemical laws, physical laws, psychological laws, and karmic laws. So there's very different kinds of laws of uh, causation. And in our lives, um, many of those laws of causation are at play when we experience an event. Okay, so it isn't just karma or it isn't just biology or whatever it is, but those things are often uh, interrelated and they can affect each other. Okay, the second part of your question I didn't quite get about the big river and the small river. Uh, I, I mean, by that money thing, it's, it's just a question about me. We, we always value people that own a lot of money. We value them rich in terms of being rich in, in Thai or other Asian languages. You say wealthy not only by, by, by having possession, also by wealthy in every, every other um, attribution. Um, kind of cleverness or whatever and my question was maybe we overvalue that in some terms today that we think money is oh that yeah, important? Oh yeah, I think we definitely overvalue wealth. Yeah, yeah definitely. When people are just obsessed with it and we can live quite happily without so much wealth. Yeah, so the, the uh, having wealth is the result of being generous what you do with your wealth, how you relate to your wealth, is a totally different ballgame. Some people have wealth and they say, oh, I'm so fortunate this comes from good karma I created. I want to create more good karma, you know, and I want to actually benefit other people, so I'm going to use my wealth, you know, to create schools or hospitals or support the Sangha or whatever it is. So you use your wealth in a positive way. Other people similarly have wealth because of 
what they did in a previous life, but now they think, oh, I'm so wealthy, I'm going to keep it for myself and I'll use it to buy my way into this and buy my way into that. And in the process of doing that, so they create a ton of negative karma. So how you use the wealth is the karma creates the karma in this life that will bring results in the future. Okay, and people will have different responses to having wealth. In the same way that when we experience suffering, it's a result of our own negative karma, but how we respond to the suffering will create karma that will ripen in the future. So this is where the mind training practice comes in. If we're ordinary beings and we experience suffering, we usually just uh, create more negative karma because we get angry at suffering. We get angry at our disadvantage. We get angry and upset, okay? If we practice the thought training practices, then when we experience suffering, we, we realize there's nothing to get angry at because we're the ones who created the principal cause for it but instead we will use the suffering to increase our renunciation of samsara. We will use our suffering to uh, develop our compassion for other living beings who are also suffering. And so in that way, uh, we transform what was a painful situation into something that becomes the path to awakening. Okay? So, you know, everything... Uh, the results are coming from the past, but how we respond to them creates the causes for the future. Okay. I had a question um, around uh, the way we are doing mind training and mm -hmm. trying to use mind training on the path to enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, and a large part of that is also altruism and what we do with uh, the gifts we have. Um, so when we have people like Melinda Gates who have used everything they own to better people's lives and um, may not be following half of that path, which is the mindfulness uh, part of it, can that still lead, can you just be altruistic but not, you know, focus on uh, the other part of uh, Buddhism that I'm just uh, beginning to find out about uh, and still be on a path to enlightenment. Okay, so you were kind of asking, can you create virtue even without being a Buddhist or without having the uh, awareness of future lives? Is that another yes. way to yes. word yes. your question? The answer is yes. Yeah. Because we see lots of people doing virtuous actions, and uh, you know they they are not Buddhist, they don't think about future lives, but they have a very kind attitude and they want to be of benefit and they create merit. Hmm? Anything else? This will be the last question. Yeah. How does our prayers for others work? when each and every one of us have to experience our own actions. Oh uh, yeah, very good. Um, so when, how do our prayers for people work? What we're doing is we're sending positive energy their way. And so 
uh, that acts as a circumstance to help their own virtue ripen. But if they haven't created virtue, we may do a lot of prayers for them, but they don't have the, the merit that can ripen. Okay. Okay. So we're at the end of the day. Well, not the end of the day. The end of the teaching day. So, uh, you know, the rest of the day, think about what you've heard. You know, there, we really covered a, a lot of material, especially about the eight worldly concerns. So really think about it and apply it to your life and, and look around and, uh, you know, see examples of karma, uh, see examples of people who appreciate their precious human life, who are aware of it, people who aren't aware of it, you know, use what is happening today and tomorrow and in, in your life to really uh, apply what you've learned, okay? And in that way, it really will begin to make sense to you. And so similarly, uh, you know, when you go home tonight, do some meditation contemplating the eight worldly concerns and making some examples of them in your life and then thinking about, okay, you know, which things do I have a lot of attachment for, or a lot of aversion for? Uh, how is that going to affect my present life? How is that going to affect future lives and my ability to attain spiritual results? And what things do I need to work on and how can I work on those specific traits to uh, release some of the attachment and aversion? Okay, so contemplate that in your meditation. And then tomorrow uh, we'll continue. We'll talk a little bit about death and hopefully the ten innermost jewels of the Kadampa. And then we'll get some more into karma. And maybe at the end we'll get into the disadvantages of samsara. I should say that um, precious human life and death and karma are talked about in this volume. Okay, volume two, The Foundation of Buddhist Practice. And then Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature talks about the fourth of the uh, four attitudes that uh, turn the mind, the disadvantages of Samsara. But it doesn't leave you feeling with just the disadvantages of Samsara because it also talks about uh, true paths, true uh, cessation, you know, the goals of our practice, and then our Buddha nature, our ability to become uh, fully awakened beings. So it ends on a note of encouraging us to practice. Okay. So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Think about what uh, really struck you in our discussion today so that you can take it home with you and contemplate it some more.
and then let's dedicate the merit. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore. In the snowy mountain pure land, you're the source of good and happiness. Powerful Tenzing Yatsu Chenrezig, may you stay until samsara ends.